you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me this morning to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9, uh, this familiar prophecy about the Lord Jesus, about the promised one. We just dipped our toes in this last week, looking at the first five verses. I figured it would be a good place for us to find our hearts for these several weeks of Advent as we focus during this Christmas season or at least try to focus on the Lord Jesus, right? Christmas season is likely the busiest season for all of us in regards to schedules, in regards to events going on, and yet the season of Advent should be for us as Christians an opportunity to slow down, an opportunity to slow down and to reflect upon, among other things, the wonder of the incarnation. A story that we've heard a thousand times but never gets old. This amazing reality that God came down to earth in the person of Jesus. And so that's what I want to be doing for the next several weeks in Isaiah 9 as we unpack these verses about the promised one, about Jesus. These sermons are going to be a little bit different than normal. Just want to give that disclaimer up front. Since we'll be looking at phrases, at titles that I hope are going to be helpful to you, I won't be unpacking a text I'll just be unpacking a few words, and in order to unpack a few words, I've got to bring the rest of Scripture into those words to bear upon those words. Of course, I hope to do that every week as I come to the text, is, is bring Scripture into whatever is being said, but this is an even more of a challenge. This was a challenge this week, even. You can ask my wife about my angst in trying to figure out and narrow down and hone in on what I should talk about. Therefore, you might call these messages in the month of December Christological meditations rather than sermons. I don't know what the difference is between those, but I feel like it's a different than what I normally do in expositing God's Word. Scriptural reflections on the person and work of Jesus that I hope by the power of the Spirit will be theological in many ways, but also devotional in many ways. Grabbing your minds, but also, I pray, grabbing your souls and your hearts. There's a lot in these verses that I'm about to read to you. We can so easily blow through these phrases, we can blow through these titles without slowing down and taking some time to unpack them, to unwrap them, to ask what they mean for us. And so we're going to try to do that. Let me also give this disclaimer. We're not going to get close to exploring all the avenues that we could explore, to exhausting all that could be said about the person of Jesus, right? There have been volumes and volumes and volumes written about the Lord Jesus. But my hope is that enough is said to move us all to greater love for, greater adoration of, greater devotion to our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And I hope that none of it, even if it's familiar to you, I hope that none of it will be ho-hum as we think about it for a few minutes. And so, 
As we normally do, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word if you're willing and if you're able. I'm going to read this passage that I'm going to read to you today. It's partly what I read last week. It is going to be the same passage every week for the next several weeks, but we're just going to focus on one particular aspect of it. And so this week, today, we're going to focus on the first two phrases of verse 6 and nothing more. Really the first phrase of verse 6 and nothing more. But I'm going to read Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 and 2 and then I'm going to jump down to verse 6 and 7. This is God's word. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Verse 6, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Well, it's officially begun, I suppose you could say, this season of giving that we like to call Christmas time. I don't know how many of us hit those Black Friday crowds. I stayed as far away from those things as I possibly could. The whole thing, this season of giving, this season of Christmas, it can be wonderful, but it also can be incredibly stressful, right? I mean, we've got birthdays, we've got Mother's Day, we've got your friend's anniversary, etc., Those are all hard enough to find gifts for those special people in our lives. But at least in those days, it's just one person, right? It's just one couple that you have to think about. Christmas is crazy because everyone needs a gift. Everyone gets a gift, right? That's what has become the center of this season and holiday for us. Why is that? Well, it's in part the center of our celebrations, not just because of the folklore of an ancient figure called Saint Nick, but also because of the Magi bringing gifts to this boy Jesus, recognizing that God has given humanity a gift. A gift that's so surprising, that's so wonderful, that as the Apostle Paul proclaimed to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 9, thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. It leaves him speechless. He doesn't know what to say. And that's what we find here in Isaiah chapter 9. All the things described 
We talked about last week in verses 1 through 5, deliverance from gloom, relief from our darkness, comfort in our distress. They all come as a result of what comes to us in verse 6. For to us, right? That's how it begins in our English translations. But the emphasis is actually not on that first word, for. It's actually on the fifth word. It's the word child. God's answer, His gift in our gloom, in our despair, in our darkness, His gift to His people, to humanity, is a child. A child is born. A son is given. You've heard those words. You've sung those terms a million times. We want to just stop for a few minutes and think about what they mean for us. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And of course, this prophecy of Isaiah was written hundreds of years before Jesus of Nazareth. The Jews twist this passage and they interpret these words to be not about the coming one, the one who we call Jesus. But they say these words are about Hezekiah. Hezekiah who had already been born by the time Isaiah penned these words. But clearly this is a promise too big for Hezekiah's shoes. Much too big for Hezekiah himself. So I want to reflect for a few minutes on three implications of a child born to us. Why does Jesus' humanity matter. You know, for me growing up in the church, I felt like I understood the Trinity. I felt like I understood that Jesus was God. We'll talk about that in a few weeks when we get to the title Mighty God. But I I must confess, I didn't think very much about the humanity of Jesus. But when I did, it made me love him all the more. The first implication is this. A child born to us reverses the curse. A child born to us reverses the curse. Now, we don't like the thought of being cursed, right? No one wants to think about being cursed. But the fact of the matter is, the curse is inescapable for all of us. One of my favorite singer-songwriters San Diegan, John Foreman, sings a song entitled Terminal. And it goes like this. The doctor says I'm dying. I die a little every day. But he's got no prescription that could take my death away. The doctor says it don't look too good. It's terminal. We are living souls with terminal hearts. Terminal parts. Flickering like candles, shimmering like candles, we're fatally flawed. We're fatally flawed. We may not like to talk about it as a society, but it's a reality for everyone. And it's not the way it's supposed to be, this reality of death. But it is the way it is because of sin. But if there's no sin, then there is no death. 
But you know the story. Many of you know the story. Maybe some of you don't know the story. Our first ancestors in a classic move that you and I, were we in that position, would have done the same thing. They wanted to be like God rather than live under God's rule and under God's care. And the result of their disobedience to their maker resulted in the curse. Hardship and toil and pain and brokenness and death. Alienation from their maker. You see, our representative had the first human ever, Adam and his wife Eve, plunged us into a death that we cannot escape on our own. And so how do we escape? Only through a child. Only through a child. A a child that was already in God's plan as soon as he pronounced the curse. Genesis 3.15, he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, that is her offspring, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see, it had to be a child. It had to be a human because it was humanity's curse that had to be undone. Not just that, but it had to be a son. It had to be a male child because it was Adam who was the head of the human race just as Jesus is the head of this new race. Romans 5 fleshes this out clearly for us where Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of that grace through one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. And so the Bible unravels that wonderful plan that Jesus came to be and is the second and last Adam. Right? He accomplished the obedience that Adam was supposed to accomplish, that Adam failed to accomplish. And he becomes our representative by faith. And as a result, the curse is reversed. Eternal death that came through one man, he turns into eternal life that comes through the second man. See, it had to be a child. But it could be no ordinary child. It could be no ordinary man because an ordinary man couldn't possibly bear the sin of the world, right? An ordinary man would have his own sinful nature to deal with himself unless this man was conceived outside of the line of that first man, right? Only one human in history has entered the world this way. And and our text doesn't bring this up, I recognize. We're just talking about one phrase and we're flooding it with the rest of Scripture. 
So I'm not bringing up something that the text brings up here, but it's brought up in several other places, and it's made explicit in the gospel accounts. A child born of a virgin. And the question I have for us is, do we really need to believe this anymore? Is that just folklore? Is that just part of the Christmas story, a warm fuzzy? We confess it almost every week. We believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Do we need to believe this? The answer is absolutely yes. Because not only does the virgin conception and birth of Jesus provide a bookend to a spiritual life, the other bookend being the the resurrection and the ascension, shows us his humanity and his deity, but it also reveals that this is a saving that we absolutely could not have accomplished on our own. We could absolutely not accomplish this by ourselves. You see, it had to be a child because we need help from the inside. It had to be a human to reverse the curse, but it couldn't be an ordinary human, so we also need help from the outside. It could only be the God-man Jesus. The Spirit of God, the one who hovered over the waters of the formless earth at the very beginning of time, must in essence recreate humanity in the midst of its brokenness. Right? That's what the Spirit of God is doing. It was the only way that a people could be saved from destruction. Yes, it's terminal, but there is hope because that which we couldn't gain on our own has been gained for us through a child. It had to happen this way. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So that's the first implication That a child born to us reverses the curse. But there's a second. A child born to us reveals the love of God. A child born to us reveals the love of God for us. You see, as I was thinking about births, we've got some births coming up in our church family here. The births are the beginning, right, of this multi-year journey of hugs and cuddles and lessons and laughter of enjoying your child's presence and love. As I get older, as my kids slowly transition out of the house, those days seem even sweeter now than they did when I was in the midst of them. But for God the Father, when the child was born, when the Son was given from his heart, by his plan, it was the beginning not of being close, but it was the beginning of separation, right? The Son being given to us was the beginning of separation from the Father that would culminate in a necessary abandonment of his Son on the cross as Jesus hung there reeking of our sin and guilt. The Father could have nothing to do with Him. We rejected Him as a human race, and it was that which prompted His love 
a love that would separate him from his son. 1 John 4, God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God has sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. You see, the son was sent, given by the father out of his heart of love, and yet the son also went willingly Right? As Paul says in Philippians, he didn't consider equality with God something to be held on to, but emptied himself. Listen to this quote by a familiar pastor, Alistair Begg. He says this, Jesus did not approach the incarnation asking, what's in it for me? What do I get out of it? In coming to earth, Jesus said, I don't matter. But Jesus, you're going you're gonna to be laid in a manger. It doesn't matter. Jesus, you will have nowhere to lay your head. It doesn't matter. Jesus, you're going to be an outcast and a stranger. It doesn't matter. Imagine to be God and come down a birth canal to be laid in a manger, to live as an outcast, to die as a stranger, to bear the abuse and the curse of the law. You see, a child born to us reveals the love of God. Not just the love of a father willing to separate from his son, but the love of a son willing to humiliate himself by taking on our flesh. And there's one last amazing thing that I want to say about this point before we move on. And that is this, and perhaps I've said this in other contexts, Jesus remains incarnate. Jesus wasn't incarnate in the Old Testament. He became flesh in the New Testament. But the second person of the Trinity, when he said, I don't matter, when he said, I will walk in your will, Father, for the sake of these people you love, he was making a decision to become a man forever. Theologian Donald McLeod writes this, the body is not just a memory for the risen Christ. He still has a body. A body which by definition is material and which stands in direct, organic succession to the one he had in the days of his humiliation. It's a great statement. It's very theologian-ish, right? Let me read you another one by a pastor. Jesus Christ became a human being, but he did not do this as a temporary exercise. He was not slumming for 33 years, only to return afterwards to his pre-incarnate state. He became a man in order to be our high priest so that there would be a man praying for us at the right hand of the Father. And He continues to occupy this office and will occupy it forever. I think that's amazing. Let that sink in. God became a man then, now, and forever. child born to us reveals the love of God for us. And then finally, we'll end here briefly. A child born to us displays true humanity. 1 Peter 2.21 is where this popped into my head as I was thinking about this phrase and thinking about its implications for our lives. Peter says this, For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example 
that you might follow in his steps. You see, Jesus walking in our shoes as a human on this earth has a whole bunch to teach us about what it means to be human. We need to be renewed. And Jesus shows us the way. And there's probably a myriad of ways that we could think about this, but I just real quickly have three. Three ways that Jesus displays true humanity. First, in his suffering. In his suffering. You see, I, I think we are under the mis- I know I am under the mistaken impression at times that my life shouldn't contain any suffering. Right? We live in an unprecedented age of comfort. And yet our Savior's life was full of hardship and suffering. Why do we think we deserve anything different? Not just suffering, but service. Right? We know this from Mark. He came not to be served, but to serve, ultimately giving his life as a ransom for many. We live in this age of increasing narcissism, right? Everything I do, I do it for me. But that's not how Jesus lived. Suffering, service, and then the last thing that came to my mind was devotion. Devotion to what? Well, Jesus was defined by his relationship with his Father. Nothing else. Right? In John chapter 6, he says, I have come not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. It seems to me this ties into what we've been talking about a little bit in the discipleship hour in these past couple weeks as we've been talking about identity, considering all the ways that we falsely seek to define our personhood, whether it be our race, whether it be our socioeconomic status, whether it be even our sexuality. Right? And that last one, that last one is a prickly one in our culture. Because we've made the essence of one's humanity their sexuality. And yet the truest human to ever live, while I'm sure he was sexually tempted, never committed a sexual act. Jesus' humanity, his identity was shaped by doing the will of his Father. And the question, I guess, for us is why is our humanity shaped by a thousand other things? Boy, we could go in a lot of different directions. We could spend a lot of time on this. We could deep dive on the implications of Jesus' humanity all day. We haven't talked about the importance of his emotions, right? Jesus' anger, his sorrow, the sympathy of his humanity that, that, that he has brought to our plight, right? He understands our weaknesses. He knows our temptations. There's so much more we can unpack. But for now, let's just rejoice. Rejoice anew that the God of heaven has become a human that a child has been given to us, a son has been born who reversed the curse, who showed us the extent of God's love and who models for us what true humanity looks like. Let's pray and give thanks. 
Heavenly Father, how thankful we are for the Lord Jesus, the one whom you sent, the one who lived the life that we couldn't live, who died the death that we deserved. Oh, Father, in this season of busyness, in this season of gift-giving, may we not forget to spend time contemplating, wondering in amazement of all the implications of what it means that you became one of us. Oh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would show us the way. I pray that you would take this truth and plant it deep in us for our good and for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.